Have you been watching this Mueller thing this morning? No. Is it any, is it worth watching? No, it's incredibly stupid. Yeah. Like the banner across the bottom of the screen on CNN and the headlines and the New York Times, it's like the same thing. It's like breaking news, Mueller did not exonerate Trump. Yeah. Which is like breaking fucking news. (laughs) We read something that was published months ago out loud. The level of stupidity of the world that we live in at this point is so far around the Yeah, it's not good. It's just... I mean, I guess that's the idea, right? Is like nobody uh, is... Nobody read the report and nobody pays attention to, you know, the right news channels or something. And so the that Congress thinks that can like saturate the airwaves uh, with Mueller. Yeah. No, that's there. That's like explicitly their goal. That's what they've been saying leading up to this. They're like, well, if we can just get him to say these things out loud, (laughs) maybe someone will hear it. (laughs) I mean, I've been talking about this for years that like, you know. We're experiencing a transition from uh, from print culture to back to oral culture or, or some new form of oral culture. Like things don't things don't register uh, in the symbolic order anymore unless they are on video. Right. Like, <laughs> unless, yeah, it's weird. Obsessed with uh, it's part of the like obsession with leaks and, uh, you know, secret videotapes and, and like all of this stuff. It's like, well, it's not just not real unless uh, there is video evidence. Right. I wonder how all that's going to like get complicated when deep fake culture. Yeah. Gets then we're just like completely unmoored from anything. Right. Like the, <laughs> uh, the last, you know, hope, like we can't, we can't believe anything anybody says, right. We live in this kind of post truth era. So like the only anchor that we have in the world of empirical reality is, uh, you know, like is photographs and video and, and audio recordings and so. fake videos. <laughs> yeah. But now that stuff is all very easy to simulate and fake. Right. And so, uh, so that's it. I, I guess, <clears throat> I don't know. I guess society just ends at that point. right? Like if you, if you can't, if you can't have any sort of basis for experiencing a common reality, then you just like can't have, uh, communities. So, so what do you give us? Like 15 years? If we're lucky. Yeah. That'd be great. Welcome to Zero Sum Empire, the podcast that's taking a critical census of the 540 mostly anonymous American billionaires. Welcome back. Welcome. It's great to have everyone here. This is our 12th episode, episode 12. Big 12. (laughs) Which I don't know what to say about it, but just we keep on churning them out. Yeah. Um, And we're going to keep churning them out uh, and hope you enjoy them. Uh, Ready to do Billionaires in the News? Yes. Let us do Billionaires in the News. All right. Billionaires in the News. All right. So uh, you, you've got some things for us today, Well, I right, guess Chad? I do. I don't know if you had a chance to look at them. Uh, I'm going to spring a surprise on you, though, uh, because uh, a billionaire was just in the news. 
Uh, oh, are you talking about Jeffrey Epstein for trying to kill yeah, himself? Well, yeah. I mean, I just I, I saw that coming. Uh, yeah, I, um, I'm not sure that uh, that I buy that story that he was <laughs> he tried to kill himself. Um, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't really have anything to say about it. It just happened. We don't have a lot of information. We don't have a about lot of information. This. I mean, the the prevailing theories online right now are that he uh, faked a suicide attempt to try to get moved to a different jail, uh, or. Uh, the more likely scenario, uh, which is that the the powers that be are trying to murder him, um, uh, doesn't doesn't really uh, say a lot for the powers that be uh, if they uh, they couldn't get, they couldn't yeah, get the job they, done. Like, sort of halfway killed Jeffrey Epstein. <laughs> it doesn't. This is all insane. I don't want to speculate yeah. about Jeffrey Epstein. I don't want to talk about Jeffrey yeah, Epstein. Let's enough of Jeffrey. Uh, Epstein. Enough of it. Let's put it away. Uh, this week we're talking about several stories, sort of a cluster of stories, and they're also not really about billionaires specifically, and not not like individual billionaires. But there's been this. Uh, it's it's been in the news. You may have heard about it. There's been this phenomenon that's developing about uh, that has to do with. Uh, financial industry divestment from fossil fuels, and it's starting as and and I and I wanted to talk about this because uh, uh, I wanted to remind everybody that we talked about this in episode two, uh, and basically predicted the future with a hundred percent accuracy uh, when we talked about it. Uh, what are you talking about? Uh, back in episode two, uh, I think your you talked about Patrick G. Ryan, uh, who was a big insurance guy, and we. Spent spent a little bit of time in that episode sort of wondering what the world would be like without uh, insurance underwriting of large infrastructure uh, projects. Oh, I remember that. And what we basically yeah. decided is that like uh, insurance for these kinds of pro- projects is like an a priori of modernity, right? Like that that, that, that right. financial structure has to be in place before any of the sort of modern mega projects that made the great acceleration uh, 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 possible. You can't have mega projects without insurance. Right. And so yeah. it looks like a lot of insurance companies are pulling out uh, of underwriting uh, projects having to do with coal. Uh, so the first one to do with this was uh, the Chubb Group. Okay. Uh, who you may remember from there. I always remember the Chubb Group from like sponsoring uh, like PBS shows from when I was a kid, like brought to you by the Chubb Group. And do you remember that? Hmm. No. No. Uh, okay. Anyway, uh, so they announced that they would no longer be insuring uh, new coal plants or any new projects that. Uh, derived more than 30% of their uh, energy from coal. Uh, and since then, that was just earlier this so what month. So what's the rationale for that? I mean, is it because they believe that the these projects are contributing to climate change in a way that they're not comfortable with? Or is it because they actually are worried about insuring these kinds of projects for other sorts of risks that I'm not quite understanding? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question um i think uh both right like uh i think that the main thing is uh that you don't want to ensure something that's either going to go out of business or become illegal or um just sort of be unsustainable in the long run because you're not just insuring the physical infrastructure right like you're insuring against bankruptcy i imagine i see and, and you know various sort of financial 
you know, things. Oh, so the, uh, it, it's some, at some level they might be insuring against like litigation against the company and this yeah. kind of thing. And so, oh, man, I mean, that would be a huge one, right? Like, I, I mean, people, there's a lot of sort of buzz about suing fossil fuel companies right. uh, because I mean, it's already in the public records that they were absolutely aware of the effects of burning fossil fuels uh, on global warming as early as 1980s, if not earlier. I mean, I just read something unrelated to what we're dealing with today that something like 90 or 100 companies are responsible for the majority of carbon emissions on the planet. And of those, they're almost all fossil fuel industries. Yeah. That's an interesting story. Uh, you know, there was a big um, eh, there's a big debate about that on Twitter, like last month about that story, you know, like sort of who is to blame? Like, oh, you're so naive for blaming uh, the big bad corporations when really what they're doing is supplying uh, the, your your demand. We'll uh, talk more about user. this later on in the show, actually, because it relates to some things that I'll be talking. Oh, good. About. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, I think that argument is wrongheaded. Anyway, the the Chubb Group uh, made this announcement, and then 15 other insurance providers signed on to that uh, just this month. And then yesterday, uh, Moody's, uh, who. Uh, we we didn't. I don't think we mentioned Moody's last episode, but we did talk about bonds a lot. And if you've heard of Moody's before, they're the people who give bonds and uh, basically they rate securities. Uh, so if you've heard like AAA rated bonds or junk bonds, the people who are assigning those designations uh, are often Moody's. Mm. Um, uh, they're known as a credit rating agency. And uh, just yesterday, they I think it was yesterday, uh, they purchased a climate data firm. Right. So it's a, it's a firm in California that assesses uh, uh, climate impacts and the risks that uh, will be posed uh, future risks uh, posed to various industries. And uh, hmm. and so Moody's bought this place because I guess they want to have, you know, a, a firsthand info on the likely uh, financial outcomes of the climate crisis as it develops. And uh, uh, so that is signaling to people that bond ratings or securities ratings, the ways that the market values investment vehicles uh is going to begin to figure in climate risk uh and so well of course it is i mean you know well sure of course it is but it's like now it's actually happening right like you know (laughs) until until very recently that was only something that people were predicting was going to happen and and now it's actually happening right once people start to associate climate change with money you know everything all decisions are going to be based around it you know I think that's a really good way to put it. Um, you know, it, it's like the risk assessors, right? Like, so what what Moody's and Chubb have in common, one's a credit rating place and one's an insurance place. What they have in common is that they do risk assessment. That's their basic business, right? And uh, the risk assessors uh, are ringing the alarm bells uh, about the climate crisis. And, you know, and to me, that's like the, you know, have you ever seen like uh, like planet Earth when a, a glacier calves or an iceberg calves and there's yeah. that like really deep, loud creaking noise before yeah. it breaks and falls into the ocean? Yeah. That's a, that's like the global economy, like the, the risk assessors <laughs> um, yeah. sounding the alarm bells about climate change is the that creaking the cre- noise before a, gl- a glacier calves <laughs> into the sea. That is absolutely <laughs> petrifying. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, Chad, you're up first today. What do you have lined up for us? Uh, well, you know, I, I'm talking about uh, the Stryker family. Uh, if you stayed tuned in to the very end, the bitter end of the last episode, uh, you noticed that uh, the random selector machine picked Rhonda Stryker for me, but but we realized that she had two siblings who are also billionaires. And so I'm going to talk about them. Uh, so I have a little bit more biography than I normally have today. Okay. So meet the Strikers. Meet the Strikers. Uh, first, we're going to talk about Homer Stryker. <laughs> which, <laughs> and we were joking when we heard his name like last week. We were, we were joking that, oh, you know, because uh, we're idiots. Oh, he should have been a baseball player. Uh, but it, in doing research, I found out he was a baseball player. He was <laughs> he was a pitcher for a minor league team. Um, that's pretty that's pretty much a baseball player. Minor yeah. league. That's no joke. No, I mean, you know, so uh, naming is destiny. Uh, uh, Homer Stryker grew up to be a baseball player, but then he grew up even more and he became a medical device inventor. Uh, <laughs> uh, and um, okay. and you probably, if you've ever broken a bone uh, and had to have a cast, you have probably uh, come into contact with one of his inventions. I've never uh, had a cast. You haven't, huh? No. You're a Knock on wood. A careful man. Except you broke your back. I right? did break <laughs> my back, and that was incredibly <laughs> painful. And yeah. I didn't move for about a month. <laughs> but they didn't. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't give me a cast. He uh, he invented a hospital bed that reduced the frequency of bed sores. He invented. Oh, if you've ever had a leg cast, and they put a little rubber nub on the bottom of it. I just told you invent- I didn't have a cast. Well, not you, the listener. Uh, He he invented that. Uh, But the reason I brought up Cass is because he invented the striker saw, which is uh, that's the thing that made him most famous. That's the the little saw that they use to get the cast off of your arm or leg or whatever. The little round buzzy thing. Yeah, it cuts through plaster very easily, but it won't damage your skin. Uh, That's cool. Yeah, it's really uh, pretty cool. Um, so he uh, he invented that and then started a company um, and uh, the Stryker Corporation. He wasn't really a businessman. He was an inventor. Uh, and so like the company never really got that big. But then it, it, I guess he started to sell products and, and he asked his son, his only child, uh, Lee Stryker, uh, to move back to Michigan and help him run the business because he was getting older and it was growing. Uh, and so in 1964, he retired and his only child, Lee Stryker, uh, took over. Okay. Um, Lee Stryker ran the company for a while and it continued to grow uh, at, you know, a respectable pace. It was still a small business, but uh, he uh, tragically died uh, in a plane crash uh, of a plane that he was flying in 1976. That is so scary. For about 10 years. Uh, Yeah, it it is scary. I Um, have some friends who fly small planes uh, and it scares me. Yeah, but they're really good pilots. They'll be fine. Oh, I'm sure Lee Stryker thought he was a good pilot too. <laughs> oh Lee God. Stryker. I mean, like speaking a name, like Lee Stryker sounds like a good. Actually, Stryker was the name of the pilot in uh, the movie Airplane. Remember the Stryker, 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 and the guy punches I, the woman. I do not remember that, but I did you see were, Airplane. Yeah. But I don't. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah, big big time pilot name. Stryker's a good pilot. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of pilots named Stryker. Uh, he was not a good pilot, though, and uh, he perished. Um, and so the reason that this is relevant 
<laughs> just the use of the word perished. So <laughs> that's what. Well, that's what happened when someone when someone dies in like a disaster, they perish, right? Like you can perish at sea. Uh, if a boat sinks or if a plane crashes, you perish. But like if you die of a heart attack, you don't perish. You just. Uh, you I guess just that's pa- right. You pass away or you die. Um, <laughs> so the reason that this is all important, though, is because Lee Stryker was just sort of a regular guy and uh, living somewhere else before he moved back to Michigan to run the, the business. And during that time, he had three children. And when he died, they were 18, 20 and 22 years old. Okay. And they were more or less like embarked on a, uh, you know, a, a Life that had nothing to do with the business. Uh, the eldest one, uh, Rhonda Stryker, who I'm going to be talking about today, became a special education teacher. Uh, the middle child, uh, in a, in true middle child fashion, became an artist, uh, and the youngest one became a. Uh, an architect. Um, and so hmm. like they weren't planning on going into the business. They weren't particularly wealthy at the time of Lee Stryker's death. The, the business was at the biggest that it had ever been. And it had made $17 million in sales that year. Um, and, so it means know, the family's the, only worth a fraction of that. Right. And this so is the profit and, margins like 10% or so. Right. Okay. And, and so, and they didn't even own the business. Right. And so, um, and so upon, the kids were about how old at this time? Uh, between 18 and 22. So they had to make decisions about their lives before they had a ton of money. Yes. Uh, yeah, they didn't really have much money at all. In fact, uh, so what happened? Well, they had and, some money. Let's be fair. Yeah. 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 Oh, no, but yeah, in yeah. the context uh, of the show. In the, yes. In the context of the show, they were not billionaires or anywhere close, right? Uh, they were not even one percenters. Um, Upon Lee Stryker's death, uh, a real businessman took over, uh, John Brown, who was also a billionaire. And I'm not going to say much about him because he's going to be he's going to come up in a future episode. But he took the business from a 17 million dollar max over the course of like, I don't know, 20 some years, 30 years uh, to uh, today, a 12.5 billion dollars in sales per year business. Uh, That is like a massive increase. Yeah. It's like a thousand times bigger than than it was, right? (laughs) Like uh, just insanely large. And so the kids who were left behind (laughs) by Lee Stryker's death uh, were each uh, the, so the company went public shortly after his death and the kids each got 4% of the business and then like never did anything related to the business. And that just grew enough to make them all billionaires. Um, That's a really unusual get rich quick story. Yeah. You just had the right stock. As close to lottery winners as we're going to get on our. uh, That's pretty interesting. So anyway, that's the, that's the background story. Um, What's interesting about the Stryker siblings is also that like they I think because of their weird history uh, in relation to money, they somehow escaped becoming monsters Uh, that that what I want to talk about today is like, what if we had the same number of billionaires that we have now, but all of them had the politics of the Stryker siblings? Would that be like an appreciably better situation? I'm not sure that it would. Uh, but before we get there, I'll say a couple of things about their politics. OK, yeah. Uh, tell so, us about who these people are, because I well, I have some feelings maybe. But yeah, keep talking. OK, I mean, the the one who's the most famous is the middle child, Pat Stryker. Uh, mm-hmm. She. 
um, is a big Democratic donor. She lives in Fort Collins, Colorado, gives really big to um, uh, Fort Collins area stuff, um, tons of money into the Fort Collins economy. Okay. Uh, she was uh, one of the architects of something called the Colorado model. Uh, of um, state level politics that happened in the early 2000s. And basically uh, four rich people got together and decided to make like think tanks and public relations outfits and uh, and and sort of grassroots type organizations uh, that would push the state from red to blue. And they actually succeeded in that. Uh, so the upshot of Pat's uh, political activity at the state level was – uh, Democrats captured both houses of the legislature and a Senate and House seat in 2004, the governorship in 2006, and a Senate and House seat in 2008. Uh, Colorado, which voted for George W. Bush by eight points in 2000 and five points in 2004, voted for Barack Obama by nine points in 2008. Um, so so we can we money. can attribute some of this political shift to the work of Stryker. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, they were the main money people behind it. And uh, and so indirectly, at least we have um, we have Pat Stryker to thank for recreational marijuana legalization Oh, uh, because (laughs) the political (laughs) atmosphere in which that became a viable opportunity in Colorado was because of the blue shift that happened there. Uh, And Colorado, as we all know, was the first state to do that. So um uh, so good, good job, Pat Stryker on that one. Um, her brother, uh, is John Stryker. Um, and he does a lot of work with LGBTQ, uh, organizations. He started something called the Arcus Foundation. They also fund a lot of progressive media, which I think is really cool. Hmm. Uh, um, maybe they'll uh, fund our show. Yeah. I mean, he funds like democracy now and, uh, and the, um, uh, Political Research Associates that publishes uh, Public Eye Magazine, which is kind of like a right wing watch type of thing that that points out instances of white supremacist, you know, kind of ideology and rhetoric inside of right wing politics. So that's what he does. And then Rhonda Stryker, who is the wealthiest, I guess at some point uh, the other two siblings sold Rhonda a percent or two. So she she currently owns six percent of the company and is the richest and is also the eldest child. And uh, and she was a special special ed teacher in public schools. Uh, They all went to public school. Uh, Her big thing seems to be educational opportunities for underserved groups. Okay. So LGBTQ youth and uh, African-American youth and youth in um, uh, experiencing poverty. Uh, So like, like she, I mean, she funds a whole bunch of stuff. Um, And and she also, they live in, um, in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and there's something called the Kalamazoo promise. And, uh, the fun, the funders of Kalamazoo Promise are anonymous, but uh, one suspects, you know, people suspect that it's her. Um, and the Kalamazoo Promise is that if you go to public school in Kalamazoo and then go to a public college, uh, the Kalamazoo Promise will pay for all of your college. That's a pretty awesome promise. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so she does a lot with education. Uh, she gave a hundred million dollars. Uh, to a medical school at to build a medical school at Western Michigan University, and she also kind of did that anonymously. But then it came out that it was her, and they and they they named the 
uh, medical school after her grandfather, after Homer Stryker. Okay, so they they do a bunch of seemingly decent things. Yeah, I mean, I don't really need to say any more. They they give to a lot of good causes with good politics and and that kind of thing. So so we have these billionaires. They're not they're not so bad, at least in their political opinions. Uh, and they do a lot of philanthropy work. Um, but like that gives us an opportunity to talk about. Like even if billionaires have more or less good politics, uh, they are still a, a ne- an overall negative structural force on democracy. <laughs> and I thought we could talk a little bit about one of the ways in which that's true today, uh, which is um, Rhonda Stryker's relationship to the city of Kalamazoo. Okay, we're gonna talk about uh, something called public philanthropic partnerships. Uh, and the reason that we're going to talk about that is because Rhonda Stryker and her husband, Bill Johnston, uh, gave a massive amount of money. Uh, they teamed up with another billionaire uh, to give $70 million to the city of Kalamazoo, uh, basically to just cover budget shortfalls. Uh, like This is stuff like paying pension plans and making it so they don't have to cut services or raise property taxes, right? Like it's just, it's just budgety stuff. It's not like revitalization or anything exciting. So, okay. Um, My first question, I mean, that's really interesting. It's great if you're Kalamazoo or a similar city that has a billionaire that's willing to enter into one of these public philanthropic partnerships because you get all this free cash. But how much influence do the donors have over how that cash is being spent? Well, (laughs) it depends who you ask. If you ask uh, uh, scholars of philanthropy, they say this is a horrible idea. Uh, Pretty much anywhere that I looked, uh, uh, scholars of philanthropy were saying, we should not do this. This is really risky, really bad. If you look at what the proponents are saying, in other words, the recipients of the money uh, at the municipal level in various cities, they're like, this is great um, because the only other options for uh, municipal governments are bad. Um, They're, you know, like public philanthropic partnerships seem like a great idea if you are in city government. Well, basically gives the city government a lot of presumably unrestricted funds that they can spend in whatever ways they want to fill whatever sort well, of budget shortfalls they want. Yeah. And in fact, if you if you live in New York or L.A., you've probably heard about something really similar uh, that goes by the name of mayor's funds. Uh, and these are funds for the mayor to do discretionary spending on projects that they deem worthy. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, Garcetti in L.A. has I'm, I'm not exactly sure what the controversy is, but has come over under a lot of scrutiny for the way that he uses the mayor's funds. So they aren't always called public philanthropic partnerships, but like that's what they are. It's right? a similar so idea. About- OK. Yeah. And they're new. This is not something that has always existed. Like new, Uh, like last 10 years, last 15 years? Yeah. Well, since the 2007 financial crisis. Okay. um, The idea, and this is something that the Obama administration really pushed, uh, the idea was that public... Uh, like municipalities would partner with philanthropic foundations and philanthropists as a short-term solution to like keep cities running without having to raise taxes. Uh, however, cities immediately realized that they really enjoyed this money coming in. And so they all started setting up um, permanent 
foundation liaison offices uh, that are just that are dedicated to getting money from philanthropists. So this is this is like the same way that a college functions. Yes. Like the alumni association, the the place that like constantly tracks you down and calls you and sends you letters to try to get you to donate to the school. So but the the, I mean, the thing that people on, on faculty governance structures talk about all the time with these big heavy hitter donors is there's a fearfulness that these people are going to start calling the shots on campus in ways that will disrupt the self-governance process. And I'm assuming that there's a similar concern. Absolutely. Uh, It's exactly the same concern. I mean, so like everybody sort of understands that in public private partnerships, uh, which is partnerships between uh, private capitalist enterprises and public uh, services or uh, public infrastructure, that, yeah, that problem exists all the time. Right. Because you're prioritizing uh, making a profit right in in uh, things that should function as social services. So whenever you hire a private company to do your ambulance work or or you create a private prison, right? like which is a great example, um, your like those things have to have return on investment for the private capital interests mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. That, that are running them, right? The idea with uh, public philanthropic partnerships is that you get rid of the profit motive. Right. Uh, but like what, what you you know, what you're pointing out, the problem of influence is exactly right. You know, like influence can be as valuable, especially if you're a billionaire, uh, than any sort of like profit on building roads or a prison or schools or mm-hmm. uh, managing a hospital or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. Like that. Um, uh, why? Well, I mean, there's I mean, there's a million reasons why this is. A so do you have idea. a specific example of how this plays out in a negative way. So this is relatively new. The institutionalization of it is even newer. You know, the the Kalamazoo thing is only a few years old and uh, and it's generally referred to as a laboratory for a new model of municipal funding, right? So like it, it's relatively new, uh, but it's something that um, uh, is happening sort of everywhere uh, from what I've read. Okay. Like it, one famous example is the um, Millennium Park uh, in Chicago. The city budgeted what they described as a garage with grass over it for $150 million. And then a, a bunch of rich people were like, no, 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 no. This needs to be very nice and beautiful uh, because it's in a district that we frequent, right? Uh, and they expanded the city's $150 million budget to $475 million, basically tripling it. Wow. Uh, and the park's amenities uh, expanded to fountains, band shells, landscaping, a theater, sculptures, right? Uh, in, and, uh, uh, quote, in assessing the impact of philanthropic support for parks, Margaret Walls, a research director at Resources for the Future, observes that as with schools, one's perspective will determine whether this philanthropy is viewed as a stunning success or a moral failure. It's like, yeah, you're right. Like we did get like a really awesome park here and it's really beautiful and there's a lot of cool stuff. Um, But of course, we could also view that as a moral failure because it's a bunch of rich people putting their expendable income into stuff that's not serving. And you could have put that money pretty much anywhere else and done a lot of other good things. There's an opportunity cost. So, I mean, while you might not have like a lot of reservations about the politics of the strikers, it's worth noting that even in their Kalamazoo deal, they partnered with another billionaire. And this billionaire was William Parfit. Uh, and he put up half the, of the $70 million. Uh, Parfit sat on the board of the Stryker Corporation, which is where I guess they got to know him. And, and he also sat on the board of Monsanto. 
Uh, he also sat on the board of his own drug company uh, that's famous for producing Xanax. Hmm. Uh, he had to step down from all of those boards in 2016 when he got me too'd for sexually harassing a bunch of women. Oh, no. um, it, however, he stayed on as uh, embattled Republican governor of Michigan, ex-governor of Michigan's uh, political action committee called uh, Relentless Positive Action Pack, <laughs> uh, um, <coughs> which is especially ironic. Uh, like an especially ironic name, given that Rick Snyder is most famous for sitting on his ass and not doing <laughs> relentlessly any positive, action. positive action. I would love to have been a fly on the wall in the boardroom when they came up with that. Yeah. <laughs> hey, hey, Rick, what should we do about this whole Flint situation? Uh, should we do some relentlessly positive action? <laughs> not this time. <laughs> Let's. Let's take no action. Let's relentlessly not do anything while children are pulled to the flag. <laughs> oh my God. Um, that is horrible. So, yeah, I mean, that's all I have to say. Um, uh, cities are basically hanging their futures on uh, the goodwill of billionaires uh, all across this nation. And uh, uh, there is nothing but prayers keeping that money flowing in because they can stop paying anytime because it's not legally binding because it's not taxes it's philanthropic donations uh joe who are you covering for us today I am talking about Dr. Victor K. Fung, who is an international business leader, thought leader, and philanthropist. None of those sound like real jobs. <laughs> well, it's the it's the exact bio of every other billion. There, there's not a billionaire who's not yeah. all of those Vinod things. Vinod Koshal is you know? very into that. Like the tech billionaires, especially, they they're all obsessed with being thought leaders. Have we expressed annoyance at the term thought leader yet? Because it's an annoying idea. Yeah, it's, I mean, uh, it's very dumb. Just because you're rich, your thoughts lead. Not to, <laughs> you know, not oh not to God, disrespect Doctor. No, Fung. that's brilliant though. Like that's such a good euphemism for hegemony. Is uh, oh, I'm a thought leader. <laughs> yeah. Like my thoughts are right. in a leading position. Uh, but that's mainly because <laughs> I have money, right? <laughs> Victor Fung is a smart guy. I saw some interviews with him and I don't mean to like knock his brain power. <laughs> uh, anyway, he was born into a Hong Kong family business called the, the name of this business is Lee and Fung, which I'll talk a lot more about here, here in a minute. He went to MIT for electrical engineering undergrad, and then he got his PhD from Harvard Business School, where he stayed on to work as a professor of finance for a while before returning to Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. So he lives in Hong Kong now, but he also holds American citizenship, hence his appearance on our list of 540 mostly anonymous American billionaires. Okay, so... Victor Fung is really the quintessential example of the kind of billionaire we were thinking about originally when we set out to do the show. The idea of an unknown person who, who controls vast infrastructure across the planet. This is a textbook example of that. So Li and Fung is a sourcing, supply chain management, and logistics company. Yeah. That sounds extremely vague. They are specialists in infrastructure. I'll explain more about 
what they do here in a second. I, the, the first thing to realize, though, is that they're massive. I had never heard of Lee and Fung, but I mean, people in the finance world will have because they are the, the world's biggest sourcing company for consumer brands and retailers. They're the world's largest supplier of consumer goods, which is a big deal. They, they act as a sourcing and supply chain middleman for a long list of, of major retailers. So they work with Walmart, Kohl's, Tommy Hilfiger, Coach, Calvin Klein, Kate Spade, may she rest in peace, <laughs> DKNY, American Eagle, and the list goes on and on and on. So, you know, last episode, we were discussing malls. This episode, we're discussing the business that supplies everything that goes inside of them. <laughs> um, I mean, to offer a sense of scale, right now, Lee and Fung brings in roughly $20 billion of revenue per year. I think the most recent data I found, it was $18 billion. Right now, Nike is doing like $35 billion. Lee and Fung's business has actually been in decline for the past several years, which some financial analysts attribute to their failure to transition smoothly into the e-commerce mm. arena. They had some opportunities to invest in Alibaba and they declined too. And so according to some sources I looked at, it looks like Victor Fung maybe even isn't classified by a billionaire as a billionaire oh. by Forbes this year. Um, though he had been for the previous 18 years. So I'm not going to talk very much about the business being in decline. I was only trying to give you a sense of how big they have been and roughly how big they still are. So, yeah. What does Lee and Fung actually do? Well, to quote a New York Times article from a few years ago, they quote, play matchmaker between poor countries' factories and affluent countries' vendors. It doesn't own any factories. They're just a vast global supply network. Another way to describe what they do, they're experts at locating and extracting the cheapest labor from across the globe. So Lee and Fung really offers us like a case study in global sweatshop capitalism, which I think is interesting. It's not something that we've actually talked about explicitly so far on the show. Here's a question. I mean, how often do you think about sweatshops, Chad? How do you I answer mean, that question? I guess not as much as I should. <laughs> it's like, that's everyone's answer. Like there's a few things that you have to do to like really be an American. And one of them is to just be able to create these uh, intricate mental defense mechanisms so that you don't have to think about all of the horror that lies behind every product that you consume. Like, you know, whether it's you know, steaks or, um, you know, Chinese radios. Or Every whatever. single thing. It's all, yeah, it's all a horror show. So, okay. Lee and Fung is associated with at least two major sweatshop disasters in Bangladesh. There was a fire in 2010 in a factory producing goods for coals. That killed 29 people. Uh, and in 2012, more famously, oh, yeah, this is the one I there was the Tazreen yeah. fire that killed 120 Jeez. workers. So, Chad, one thing that we maybe should 
start really trying to monitor and keep track of on the show or inherent conflicts of interest that are embedded in various aspects of the economy, which I think we've talked about different examples of this before in different episodes. I, I specifically remember talking about the practice of contingent commissions where yeah, basically insurance agents are incentivized to not pay out as many claims as, as maybe they should. Um, and there are other examples that I'm sure that we've touched on, but today the, the conflict of interest that is obvious in the global supply chain arena that we're talking about is that logistics companies that serve as, as middlemen in this way are tasked with two essentially contradictory responsibilities. Okay. One, keep prices low by driving wages down. And two, serve as whistleblowers for factories that violate <laughs> safety standards. Uh, the classic, don't let us see you breaking the law uh, situation. Yeah, I mean, these are fundamentally not compatible responsibilities. And yet they fall on these companies. On the same entity, right? Yeah. So um, to refer back to the New York Times reporting uh, from, from the article that I quoted earlier, uh, in the aftermath of the Tazreen fire, a group of retailers met in Geneva to discuss developing a fund to compensate the families of, of the dead workers. Uh, and at that time, Lee and Funk steps up and pays families twelve hundred dollars. We'll come back. To, we'll come back to that. Interestingly, Walmart, Disney and Sears, who all had clothing that were made in this factory, refused to pay anything into the fund. And what's important to realize, what we need to take away from this, is that part of what Lee and Fung does as a company, a baseline element of their business model, is to provide cover to these companies, to these more uh, well-known retail companies, so that they don't have to pay into so this funds this is like why, this. you know, Sears can be like, what? We had sweatshop labor? Like, you know, yeah. They can, they yeah. Can it just, in. it's yeah, a buffer. Okay. Yeah. You know, it provides one degree of remove. Which in and, itself and, and, is like a, is a worthwhile service. And I could imagine these companies paying for them, even if they're not actually doing real logistics work, right? If that like just the function of being a a source of plausible deniability by functioning as a on paper intermediary uh seems like a really great right. service to provide to multinational corporations. Well Lian Fung also provides all of the logistics <laughs> and sourcing and hence they're one of the biggest yeah. companies ever. So okay, like Lian Fung has been in recent years publicly promoting the virtues of corporate social responsibility. Obviously, this is has to do with sort of a PR campaign uh, that's been at least partially in response to these horrific fires and the substandard working conditions in the factories that they do business with. At the same time, you know, we can acknowledge that they've made some moves that are generally perhaps steps in a positive direction. They've participated in a women in trade initiative designed to increase women's participation in trade companies. Back in 2006, they became a member of the Supplier Ethical Data Exchange, which is an organization that 
gathers and shares information about labor practices. Recently, they've been engaged in communications campaigns, embracing the ethic of sustainability and highlighting environmental awareness concerns, et cetera, basically like every other major corporation. But they were among the very first companies to voluntarily compensate people for the Tazreen fire. Now, you know, flashback two minutes ago when we talked about the fact that they gave each family 1200 bucks each. I'm not sure if they ultimately gave more than that. That was a statistic that I found that was accurate as of 2013. Mm-hmm. Um, but that same year in 2013, the Human Rights Watch reported that the amount of money awarded to the victims' families collectively from all of the different companies that were willing to to, to pony up was still woefully insufficient. Yeah which is should be obvious. But interestingly, according to one paper that I read on this subject, Lian Fung's reputation may have actually improved in the aftermath of this event because they acted faster and actually did more than so many other companies did. <laughs> so even though they didn't do nearly as much as they could have or should it have. It is literally the least we and can it, do. And by the way, it's more than you're getting from anybody else. <laughs> Pretty much, you know, um, which is just sort of awful <laughs> on, on, on so many levels. So I, I want to bring us back to the overarching point of this business, which is, in the end, to extract value wherever possible from the supply chain. In 2011, Victor Fung gave a speech to the Century 21 Club where he outlined Lian Fung's basic business strategy. And there's three parts. One, break down the supply chain into the smallest component parts possible. So, you know, source yarn from one place, buttons from another place. Make sure that you're getting everything you need from some distinct supplier that are separate from one another. Two, source from multiple plants following the flow of cheap labor, wherever that is. And three, work on a contract basis with, with all your suppliers. So collectively, this strategy allows Lian Fung to exert maximum pressure on all aspects of the supply chain, ensuring to keep costs low, but also <laughs> ensuring to keep many of their suppliers and people who are working in these factories pretty miserable. All all of the suppliers are fighting for their next contract. Everything is uncertain. There's very little incentive for Lee and Fung to invest in worker pay or improved factory conditions. You know, so I think the interesting thing to think about here is whether or not companies mean well. And I mean, there's a lot of reasons to believe that a lot of these companies don't mean well, but whether or not they do, the basic design, at least in this aspect of industry, is just broken. Yeah. There's no incentive structure that encourages good things to happen for workers or, you know, for, in you know, analogously the environment and other, other things that, um, we would care about here on the show. So, you know, going back to what you were talking about earlier, the the Twitter war that you were following or maybe engaging in, I mean, it's definitely, I think, important to recognize 
the fact that we are all complicit in these larger economic systems and it's our desire for cheap goods that perpetuates all of these scenarios. This is true with sweatshops. It's true when it comes to global warming. I like the bit in, in Roy Scranton's Learning to Die in the Anthropocene where he, he talks about the problem being inside all of us. Something is sort of a cancer that is at the core of all of us alive, especially those of us who live in the industrialized West. And, you know, I'm the first to point out that we're all sort of hopelessly mired and embedded within the infrastructure of global capitalism. But I guess my main point is, it doesn't mean that we have to celebrate it. (laughs) (laughs) And it seems like there's so much celebration of it, you know? Like in, 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 at least in business discourse and in popular discourse, you know, like that to me seems wrong. I mean, it's all wrong. I don't know if you have any, I've been talking a lot. I don't know if you had anything. Uh, No, I mean, just that that, uh, I completely agree with you. I mean, that, I mean, we've, we've talked about this a little bit, but that's like the, you know, the, the, the ruling ideas are unfailingly the ideas of the ruling class, right? That, um, and, yeah. But you're, I mean, you're you're also queuing into just more of like a a psychological question that I think most um, uh, most people wonder about um, in their lives at some point, which is like, is it really you know like do they really? I mean, you think about this with politicians all the time. Do they really believe what they're saying, or are they just you know saying it because it's expedient or advantageous to them in some way, right? Um, like we all, like, it's the same thing with me, right? Like, is it, do you, do you really believe that kind of like unfettered, like Paul Ryan, do you really believe that unfettered capitalism and, uh, and completely deregulating every industry is really like a good thing? Do you really like that is going to lead <laughs> to a better, do you really believe that? Cause it doesn't, there's no evidence yeah. that it, that it's true. There's, a, you know, like, <laughs> um, but it is really great if you are, if you are a capitalist, like it is a really great thing to believe and to be able to say and have other people believe you uh but it, like that's also what makes it hard to believe that they believe that right and so I, mean, like, I don't i don't know if that's even really an interesting question but i think everyone wonders it at some time yeah no i think that's right yeah um so i thought i'd end the segment by going back in history to talk briefly about the great granddaddy of supply chain management, who is someone I know you know at least something about, and and this is Frederick Winslow Taylor. Sure, yeah. Whose Principles of Scientific Management, first published in 1911, laid the groundwork for today's supply chain management theory. Yeah. So Taylor, like so many of his contemporaries around the turn of the 20th century, was obsessed with the idea of waste and minimizing waste. His goal was to minimize or eliminate waste by increasing management efficiency at every step of the production process. To quote the beginning of uh, chapter one of Principles of Scientific Management, Taylor writes, the principal object of management should be to secure the maximum prosperity for the employer coupled with the maximum prosperity for each employee. And he basically argues that workers should be paid based on their productivity, but also improve conditions for workers so that maximum productivity could be achieved. Um, Okay. So, you know, in some sense, this may have been a laudable goal, but there's an inherent and obvious contradiction 
at the core of this idea, and that's that maximum prosperity of the workers and the employers are in constant tension with one another. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) And as we've seen this play out, it's resulted in this sort of horrific irony where scientific management may have set out to improve the conditions of workers, but in some ways it's outlined a set of strategies that's made it possible for, for employers to exploit workers to the maximum possible extent. Yeah. I mean, and and it's really laid out in, in Taylor in a really uh, clear and obvious way. Um, And, and, you know, I would suggest people read it just because it's like, it's sort of shocking uh, how badly he, he treats workers, like the way that he uh, talks to this guy Schmidt that he's like training uh, uh, to haul pig iron in a, in a famous passage. But it's like the way that he thought about improving conditions uh, for workers was like to pay, to pay people uh, based on output. Right. So the way that, I think the way he was thinking yeah. about it is like, hey, if you work harder, that's good for me. But it's also good for you because you're going to get paid more. Right? Like, and, and so and it never yeah. really went further than that. Right. Like that uh, that he uh, he trained this guy to go from lifting like two tons of pig iron per day to 10 tons per day or something along. the Like he quintupled his output or something like that. And, and so like. You know, there's there's no ability in Taylor to uh, think about what happens to that guy's body when he goes home or what his, what the lifespan of his joints will be, uh, because for him, no, no bandwidth for the idea of an externality. That's 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 exactly right. Right. Like there are no there are no externalities in Taylor. Right. It's just like, well, if you're hauling more pig iron, you make more money and you make more money. That's good for you. Right. And that's what you want. And, and yeah. yeah, I mean, like <laughs> it's a. Um, yeah. But I mean, it's essentially the same logic that we're still Absolutely. working with. Yeah. You know, and that's what's just incredibly scary. So here we are at the end of another show. It's time to spin that big wheel to crank up our magical machine. Let's find out who our billionaires are going to be for next week. And our first billionaire is Philip Anschultz. $9.7 billion. He's up there. Uh, If you got double digit billions, uh, which he doesn't, but he's close, uh, you know, you're you're in that you're in that top five percent, I think Uh, he is the co-founder of Major League Soccer Um, and uh, also oil. So (laughs) we'll see which one of those is more interesting. Um, Soccer, oil for Philip. Okay, who's the next one? Spinning that wheel again. And the next billionaire is David Sun, founder of Kingston Technology, Sun Information. David Sun is in the business of computer memory. Oh, that's kind of interesting. Um, so we've got an oil guy and we a have Phil and a technology and guy. Major League Soccer, uh, which could also be interesting. And we have. Uh, a um damn okay i th- i think i know who i would rather do but who would you rather do um i don't care i'll let you pick 
I think I want Sun. You want David Sun? Yeah. Kingston Technology, Computer Memory. All right. I will take uh, Philip Anschultz, the co-founder of Major League Soccer, and Oil. Great. That should be good. Well, everybody, please do take the time to like and subscribe and just spread the word. When you're hanging out with the other teens on the corner talking about which podcasts you like, make sure to tell them Zero Sum Empire. (laughs) That would be great. Um, As always, thanks for listening. We really appreciate you guys. We will be back in two weeks.